Welcome to GenCast, a sponsored podcast series brought to you by Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. I'm your host, Jeff Bukaliskis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new GenCast. We have a pretty exciting and fascinating discussion lined up for today as we discuss the role that methods like massively parallel reporter assays, or MPRAs, as they're often referred to, are having in genetics research, particularly for the work that our guest is doing which is a very nice segue to meet our podcast guest. Joe, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to the Gen audience and telling us a little bit more about what you do. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, my name is Joe Doherty. I'm an associate professor in the genetics and psychiatry departments at Washington University in St. Louis. Our lab focuses on understanding how you get from a genetic risk factor in a disease uh, to an actual manifestation of the disease. Uh, especially with regards to psychiatric disorders such as autism and depression. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure to meet you. And maybe you could uh, start off by telling us a little bit about the challenges of understanding the genetics of psychiatric disorders and how that's going right now. Uh, yeah, I'd love to. We're in a really interesting phase of human genetics for psychiatric disease right now. When I started grad school, uh, oh boy, 20 years ago, uh, essentially no genes were known uh, that contributed to human psychiatric disease, even though it had been cleared for decades that there was a strong genetic component to most of these disorders. Like your risk of developing, of being diagnosed with autism, if, you're an, if your identical twin has it, is 90%. I mean, that's a very strong indication uh, that this is driven genetically, as an example. Um, similar rates occur for, you know, somewhat lower for depression or schizophrenia. So it's always been clear they're very genetic, but identifying the genes was quite a challenge for a long time. Of course, along came technology, especially chip-based technology for genotyping uh, based on oligonucleotide synthesis, or and clearly the advances in sequencing that led to sort of exome and genome sequencing. Fast forward 10 years, thanks to the efforts of uh, the huge community of human genetics researchers, we almost now have the opposite problem of going from uh, almost no genes or variants associated with disease. With example of this, large consortia working together, sequencing hundreds of cases of kids with autism, have now discovered sets of a, maybe 200 genes or more uh, that are recurrently mutated in those kids with autism and really never seen in their siblings. So these are really strongly associated with disease. And that was sort of exome sequencing led to that. Uh, as sequencing costs dropped and the field moved on to genome sequencing, we also discovered 10 times more non-coding mutations uh, however, it's much harder to interpret those. You can't figure out which of those non-coding mutations might actually uh, be causing disease and which ones are just sort of noise in the background. Uh, and that's because you can't just look at a non-coding mutation and know what it does. In the protein coding genome, as you know, uh, you have sort of this triplet code. Um, you can predict the consequences of any mutation. Um, but in the uh, non-coding genome, we don't have that simple lookup table. We need some kind of functional assay to be able to understand what those mutations do. So common variants, as you know, have the same problem. Most of those that have been associated successfully with disease are in this non-coding space. So we can't figure out which of those are actually functional. Furthermore, they're inherited in these huge blocks. Um, because chromosomes aren't inherited like as little individual bases, but rather big fragments, you'll inherit, you know, a block of 100 kilobases from dad, and then a chunk from mom, and then a chunk from dad, or uh, from their grandparents. Nearby polymorphisms are correlated with each other. And what human genetics has done really well for these common variant analyses, I mean, quite successfully, you know, discovering in schizophrenia, 
I think they're upwards of 200 different loci where, these, where they've identified blocks of variants that are clearly associated with disease, that are clearly occurring. You know, one variant is happening more in the cases than the controls, but you don't know which of the things in the block are actually causal. They're all sort of linked together. They're all correlated um, at a reasonable level. So it can be very hard to figure out which are functional and thus causal. Um, so that's kind of the challenges in understanding human genetics right now is moving from the level of having identified all these um, variants that are clearly associated in the case of common non-coding variants or potentially risk-causing in the case of rare variants that are you know, in this non-coding space and figure out which of them actually do something. And from there, trying to understand the biology uh, of the disease, using the genetics to get towards un understanding the disorder. So, Joe, as I mentioned when we started, uh, these MPRAs are gaining traction in genetics literature. And I know that's something that you do in your own research. So maybe you could give us a little bit of the basics of how an experiment is set up and tell us why, um, you know, these are exciting for genetics research. Sure. I mean, the excitement about these assays is they allow us to actually figure out which of those variants are functional. So we can go from, you know, thousands of potential variants that could be related to the disease uh, down to the ones that actually matter. Because one clear filter about whether or not something matters biologically is, does it do anything? And most of these variants are assumed to be affecting gene expression. So we want to be able to uh, find a way to measure gene expression, uh, the impact on gene expression of thousands of variants at once. Um, now, I'm sure you're familiar with a standard reporter assay, right? Yeah, a little bit, but maybe you could explain them a little bit more just for everyone's sake. Sure. Yeah. Um, so like in a standard reporter essay, you might have, uh, well, I mean, let's imagine you just had one variant to deal with. Like very simply, what would you do as a basic biologist to study the consequences of one variant? Well, you would, you know, whip out your PCR primers, you would amplify up that region of the genome, um, you know, it put the point with and without the point mutation in it that you wanted to study. You would then clone that fragment that potential enhancer fragment upstream of a small minimal promoter, maybe your favorite fluorescent reporter like a GFP or RFP. Um, and then you'd have one copy of the plasmid with the reference allele and one with the alternate or mutant allele. And you would transfect one of those plasmids into one well of cells and another one adjacent to it. And then you'd measure the fluorescence levels off those two wells. And you know, if the mutation had brighter fluorescence, then that meant it was maybe increasing gene expression uh, or de decreasing gene expression if it was going down. It's a very simple assay. Maybe you do it with some three or four replicates to be more confident in it. Um, and simple, effective, uh, but not scalable, really. Um, you know, it, once you get up to challenges of human genetics, we've identified, uh, you know, a hundred different loci that are associated with disease, each of which have, uh, you know, several hundred variants in them. You're talking about thousands and thousands of uh, constructs and cells. So the idea of a massively parallel reporter assay um, is to be able to convert that fluorescent-based readout into something that we can, that actually is scalable, uh, that we can do in parallel for many different uh, reporters simultaneously. Uh, and it's sort of the mantra, right? The secret of modern genomics is to figure out how to turn everything into a sequencing experiment. Uh, so how do we turn a fluorescent readout into a sequencing experiment? Uh, well, the concept is that you take your, you know, you construct the reporter the same way, but instead of reading out fluorescence levels, instead you're going to uh, add a unique barcode that identifies that enhancer and that variant. And you add this unique barcode into the three prime UTR. This is the untranslated region downstream of the GFP. So it's a, the barcode's just, you know, six, eight nucleotides that uniquely identify that combination of enhancer and mutation. Now uh, you would 
you know, in our sort of simple two-variant experiment, uh, you would transfect both plasmids in the same well, harvest the RNA, um, make primers to sequence off of the cDNA from the RNA to uh, amplify that little fragment of UTR, and then you would throw it onto a, an Illumina sequencer and count the number of times you see each barcode. If the mutation is increasing uh, RNA expression levels, then you just see you should see that barcode level increase when you compare it to the starting abundance uh, in the plasmid DNA pool. So that would get you two at a time. The the key to really be doing thousands at once uh, is that you need some way to generate thousands of these potential uh, enhancer elements with their with and without their variants with and without their barcodes in parallel. And and that's where sort of the advances in oligonucleotide synthesis have come in. So the same technologies that have been used over the years initially to like synthesize microarrays more recently have been adapted to things like CRISPR screens where you need to synthesize thousands of guide RNAs. Here, just like that, you sort of in silico design your library that you'd like. And then using, um, you know, oligo manufacturers like Twist, you would sort of order up the oligonucleotide sequences you would like in parallel for all of the different variants you might want to study. So uh, in our, a recent study, We've been working on a student in my lab, Bernie Mulvey, um, did this really fascinating project where he took 30 different loci that had been associated with depression, identified all of the SNPs or plausible SNPs that were sort of in those linked regions uh, of common variants and, and ordered them all at once to be cloned in parallel into a single plasmid in one tube. So even though you have 10 or 20,000 oligos, um, it's one cloning reaction to drop them into a plasmid and then creating a single tube with sort of a whole library full of different plasmids uh, that you can then uh, measure in parallel simultaneously all of these different variants at once. So based on that uh, experiment that you're just talking about, what are some of the key findings from that uh, when applying the NPRAs to the genetics of depression? We set out kind of with two goals in mind. One was like an annotation project. Again, that problem I described in human genetics, you have these big loci, they have thousands of variants, which ones actually have potential to be functional? So it was sort of a screen. We put all of them in at once, uh, looked for those things that seemed to, where the alleles seemed to up or downregulate gene expression. And what we actually found kind of matched the what we would expect from human genetics literature, that, that many of them do have some functional effect, uh, many at uh, small sizes. Um, and I think one of the big picture conclusions we came out of this was that um, probably most of these blocks of SNPs that cause disease, um, it's probably not just like one SNP in the locus that's the causal one. It's probably many of them or a few of them acting in concert uh, because for most loci, we found more than one that was clearly functional. So I think that's sort of interesting and helpful at least to be able to narrow down into which ones are more likely, uh, you know, uh, causal. The second thing I think that was interesting was to try and understand the biology better because, you know, it's very rare that we're able to sort of directly think about treating the gene, especially in human genetics where there might be many different routes to the disorder, you know, many different sort of biological, uh, many different sets of genes that can increase your risk of getting the disease. You don't necessarily want to try and treat that one SNP that has a really small effect size by itself and that probably won't change that person's risk very much or won't necessarily get them to a, a, a treatment. Um, rather, you want to think about trying to find points of biological convergence, like using the 
the findings from these reporter assays to better understand the nature of the disorder. Um, certainly on the human genetic side, you've seen a lot of literature trying to look at the downstream targets, the genes that are modulated, and group those into biological pathways you can then follow up. What MPRAs allow you to do is to take another to look at a, another kind of biological convergence. What are the upstream regulators that might be shared across all these different loci? Uh, so what was really exciting about that was Bernie's really clever approach there was to focus on convergence uh, rather than on the downstream genes, on the upstream regulators. The question he was able to ask from the data was when he looked across all the loci at the SNPs that were showing function, were they sharing any common binding sites? I mean, the way these variants are thought to have function is that they're disrupting a binding site for a transcription factor, for example, you know, changing a preferred binding sequence to something non-preferred and thus reducing its level of activity. What he did was scan across all of the functional SNPs and look for points of convergence, so kind of a shared transcription factors across multiple loci, is that might be a place where these genes are, are, are sort of these different loci might be coming together or converging and kind of a more singular point at which one could intervene. Uh, and he found a fair number of transcription factors, sort of a consistent pattern across loci uh, of recurrent transcription factors, uh, which we thought was very interesting. Now, have you ever heard of, um, I mean, I think our favorite one, though, uh, goes back to a, actually some older literature. Have you heard of this uh, Accutane treatment for acne before? I definitely heard of it, yeah. So it's uh, retinoid. It's not quite, it's a, beyond my expertise to say exactly how it works for acne. Um, but chemically, it's uh, sort of a retinoid-mediated signaling. Uh, and a side effect, a well-noted side effect, in fact, a black box warning label on this as a treatment, uh, is that it can occasionally increase suicidality um, in uh, in patients that are treated with it. So it's sort of a warning of things to watch out for. It's very rare, um, but it ended up being severe enough to get a label from the FDA on the box. One of Bernie's things he noticed in the data, which really leapt out at us, was across these different loci, he was finding a transcription factor binding site this works through a retinoid signaling pathway, this compound. Uh, this compound works through a retinoid signaling pathway. Uh, retinoid signaling pathways are actually transcription factor mediated. Retinoids directly bind protein transcription factors, uh, which then mediates their interactions with the DNA. What Bernie found across loci uh, was that it was a, a larger sort of a preponderance of different binding sites for these retinoid transcription factors across depression loci. So we thought this was really fascinating because it suggested that there was a convergence on one hand of genetic risks that are modifying these, the expression of these sets of uh, genes across these loci, uh, as discovered by human genetics and now annotated by Bernie. Uh, and then on the other hand, an environmental risk factor, this sort of exposure to retinoids uh, could be potentially modulating genes in the same loci. So he did this really clever follow-up experiment, and I think it's actually a potentially a new exciting application for MPRAs as well. Um, which is they actually repeated the entire series of experiments with and without a retinoids kind of mixed into the culture. And so it turns the experiment from just a straight up sort of genetic annotation experiment into kind of a functional pharmacogenomics experiment. How does this drug, this, you know, this thing that's in therapeutic use right now, modulate the effect of these same uh, loci that are, in, uh, that are found to be associated with depression? And what he found was it actually increased the activity of, of many of these loci. In fact, it kind of recruited more um, functional variants. So again, this pointed to, to a, a point of convergence. It suggested the idea that multiple loci across the genome are sharing both the genetic risk and environmental factor, and that that dial can be turned up uh, potentially by exposure to retinoids. 
So Joe, you know, the way you describe them, these MPRAs sound, you know, really useful um, in your work. Um, but as we always know, as researchers, there's always some drawbacks. So maybe you could sort of tell me what are some of the challenges of executing, you know, these reporter assay experiments and how do you ensure uh, that the data is re reproducible? First, I have to give a, a shout out to the people that really developed these assays. Uh, you know, here at WashU, I learned them from the, the Cohen lab. And so we had to stand on the uh, shoulders of giants in terms of they worked out many of the complicated kinks, but there's a, a lot that goes into designing a, a proper experiment. First, the you need you want to have as much technical replication as possible. You're often trying to measure relatively small effect sizes. Uh, many common variants aren't thought to have a large effect. So to be able to achieve that, you need to have good statistical power, and that comes from two places. Uh, you want to repeat the experiment across many different you know replicate wells. Uh, Fortunately, that's pretty straightforward. Um, once you have this pool of plasmid, it's not that much harder to transfect it into 12 wells than it is into three. Second, you want to build in good controls into the experiment itself. Uh, so we put multiple barcodes per allele, uh, preferably somewhere in the order of six to 10. For a given, for a given allele, you want to make sure you have multiple barcodes. Uh, otherwise, the effect of the barcode could overwhelm the effect of the allele. Like, the, you know, you need... If, if you're only changing one base pair to model, to model a SNP effect uh, and your barcode's eight base pairs, your barcodes could have a bigger effect than the allele effect. So to kind of average that out, you want to make sure you have multiple barcodes per allele. I think for this study, we did six. We're moving more towards 10. So that, that can help kind of reduce away those effects. I mean, and then there's also clearly the importance, I guess there's two other points I would raise. Um, one is thinking very carefully about the context you're going into. Uh, and the second is actually the, the quality of the oligonucleotides uh, themselves. So as far as context, uh, you want to, you know, studying regulation of gene expression is different than studying protein coding changes. In, in protein coding changes, the same ribosome code works in every cell in your body. So a stop codon in the liver is the same as a stop codon in a brain. Um, in regulatory uh, space, you're thinking about you're modulating, you know, for in my prior example, you're changing a, a base pair that changes a transcription factor binding site. Um, if that transcription factor is not expressed, then it won't matter in that cell. So you need to think about a context that looks similar to where you think the disease process might be occurring, that'll have the same regulatory landscape in terms of uh, transcription factor binding sites or uh, microRNA expression if you're studying, for example, UTR variation. Uh, for Bernie's study, we thought about, he knew he was going to, he had some interest in this retinoid hypothesis potentially. Um, and so we picked a context where we knew there were going to be retinoid responsive genes. Certainly be other interesting to think about other contexts as well. So I think that's one thing you need to sort of think about is what's the right biological context to be doing an experiment to measure regulation. Uh, and then the other big thing is, that, you know, of course, the quality of the pool of oligos. This is an area also where technology has been advancing quickly, and it's really changing the kinds of experiments we can do. The one limitation is the length of oligos. Uh, the you Many regulatory sequences are larger than 100 bases. So if you can only synthesize 100 bases, you're not able to capture or study that element. So the you know, the longer the oligos you can get, and I think there's some good places now that are getting up to like good quality 300 base pair oligos, uh, you can really start to study larger elements and larger classes of mutation. The other thing, and this is more subtle, uh, is the the uniformity of the pool. The 
one challenge is trying to efficiently clone thousands of oligos at once with equal efficiency. And I, your ideal DNA plasmid pool would have every oligo sort of equally abundant in there so that uh, you didn't have to normalize out too much of the differences in the starting DNA pool. This makes a difference also in kind of your eventual costs on sequencing depth. If you have oligos in your pool that are one ten thousandth of other oligos, you'll measure the very abundant ones well and the poorly abundant ones not at all unless you sequence really deeply. You also have to think about how many cells you're delivering it into. So those low abundant oligos uh, may not be even make it into the cells you're trying to transfect in if they're too low abundance. To some extent, you can normalize some of that out, and you often do. You kind of do a ratio of your RNA barcode counts to your DNA barcode counts to normalize away some of that. Uh, but to the extent the oligo pool itself starts well normalized and well balanced even before you clone it, will definitely improve your ability to um, uh, improve your ability to get good even cloning, and thus not have to you know actually get your whole library represented into the final experiment, and not have to pay as much on the back end on sequencing costs. Uh, and then finally, error rates, right? Uh, you want to be measuring one uh, SNP that, uh, you know, the effect of one, a one base pair change that you've designed into the library at a certain position. Uh, if the oligo error rates are high, then you're accidentally measuring thousands of other SNPs that you didn't design uh, and that you may not even be aware of if you don't carefully control and look for them. So you really want to focus on high quality oligos where you can have uh, very, very low error rates um, to successfully be able to get good you know representation of the library and know that you're measuring what you're planning on measuring uh, so those are kind of some of the key parameters we think about overall the the uh the end sort of the number of replicates number of barcodes the quality of the oligos and then the biological context uh, you're going into so if i can sort of ask more of a broad question and zoom out for a second you know how do you see these mpras influencing uh research in genetics as a whole i mean i think there's a this ability to figure out from the thousands of variants that are available, which, you know, that are being discovered in human genetics, which ones are actually functional. I mean, I think that's the big challenge right now. There's the scale of, uh, of discoveries in human genetics is so large that we need something to keep pace with that. To some extent, people have tried to do epigenetics marks as a way of identifying function, you know, histone acetylation sites in the genome or chip seq binding sites. And those are, interesting and potentially informative and they, they certainly correlate with function but they're not the same thing as function as you can often identify you know chip seek sites that uh actually don't modulate gene expression uh or things that are sort of predicted to be modulatory but aren't and, and vice and vice versa you can also identify sequences that are modulatory but don't seem to carry any of these marks so i think mpras fill in a very important niche of something that you can do at the scale that's genome wide or, or, you know, or at least thousands of variants at once, um, but is actually a functional readout of activity uh, for gene expression. So then I guess my next question, you know, more of a sort of a 10,000 foot kind of view question, um, you know, do you have any thoughts on how these might be applied beyond that, uh, just in the, you know, the sort of uh, life sciences field in general? Sure. <laughs> Lots. I mean, I think you can look back to the folks that have been working on them for a little while to see some of the great applications. Uh, like I said, the, you know, the Cohen lab we worked with has done really elegant work to understand the basic fundamental rules of, of um, uh, gene expression regulation. I've been talking here a lot about the putting different alleles in and out to come from human genetics, but you can certainly, you know, scrap all that and try and use MPRAs as a way of discovering 
highly active elements or inactive elements completely de novo. So you can design different combinations of transcription factor binding sites and study the basic biology of how those things co-regulate gene expression uh, by, you know, in basic, you can sit in, in silico in, uh, in an Excel sheet and design all possible combinations of, of a pair of transcription factor binding sites and look at how they interact with each other. Um, I think that's a powerful opportunity to like define the basic biology, the regulatory grammar uh, of the nervous system or, or of any system really. So that's one really cool application. Uh, another one that you're seeing come down the pipe is sort of pre-annotation. I mean, right now I'm talking about taking variants that already exist in the human genome and modeling them. Uh, for rare variants, they're discovering thousands of new mutations all the time in patients. Many, of, almost all of these are de novo or very, very infrequent. So you would not have necessarily designed an assay ahead of time to capture it. Uh, this scale of MPRAs allows you to actually sort of pre-annotate a region uh, for patients even before you see it. Um, and you're seeing this penetrate now mostly to uh, sort of loci that are clearly implicated in disease, you know, the, the BRCA1 gene, for example. You can use massively parallel reporter assays or kind of subsets of them that are called deep mutational scanning, where you can take chunks of that gene, use oligosynthesis to create all possible combinations of point mutations in it. And then if you can convert the readout for that to a sequencing-based readout, uh, you can sort of create a lookup table for all possible mutations in that gene uh, before you even see them in a patient. And that'll help you figure out the wheat from the chaff, which of those mutations, when you do see it in a patient, actually is deleterious. Um, again, a challenge, because by the time you see it in a patient, you might need to be, you know, act quickly on that information and not have a year to go design a reporter assay and check. But if you already knew the consequences of all possible mutations, you just have it there as a lookup table. So I think that's one emerging application that is uh, coming up. Uh, and I think the last one that was sort of highlighted from Bernie's study that we hadn't really appreciated before this uh, is uh, a pharmacogenomic kind of thing. Like understanding the interaction between uh, drug treatments and genetics could be a powerful opportunity for these things. I mean, his study hints at that. Uh, we'd have to kind of do more to know exactly how it would pan out. Uh, but you can imagine a circumstance where you help identify which variants actually respond to these drugs, and that can help you maybe identify which patients shouldn't be taking those drugs, who, which, which patients are carrying the alleles that would be responsive to those drugs uh, in a functional sense, and thus would be at a higher risk of the bad side effects. And on the flip side, which ones would be more safe to take it and you wouldn't have to worry about prescribing it as much. And I think that's a, a neat opportunity that could be explored a lot with this kind of technology uh, that hadn't seen done too much until, uh, until Bernie's work. So for my final question, Joe, to zoom back in, um, tell me, you know, what's next for your lab? Right now, we are, we're super excited about these assays and applying them to a variety of uh, psychiatric questions in psychiatric genetics and basic biology. Uh, we've been looking at using them to study regulation of translation quite a bit. So looking at kind of UTR variation instead of enhancer variation. Uh, so that's kind of been one area of interest, uh, especially like kind of local translation, which is a cool phenomenon in the brain. And that could do a whole nother, uh, I could give you a whole nother sort of 40 minute podcast on that potentially more, more than you might want to hear. Um, and then I think the, the other big obsession right now for us is this issue of context, of biological context that I've mentioned before. These are psychiatric, a lot of what we're interested in is psychiatric genetic variants. Um, Bernie's work was in a cell line, which seemed appropriate for the, for the drugs he wanted to put on them. Um, but really we'd like to know what's going to, how are they playing out in, in neurons that are probably the cells that mediate a lot of this disease risk? 
And so what my lab has been focused on a lot the last couple of years is figuring out how to deliver these libraries in a high throughput and efficient and scalable way directly into the brain for measurement, uh, mostly using a mouse. And I think we've got some exciting stuff coming down the pipe for that, where I think we've kind of solved the problem of being able to do this in a cell type specific manner in the brain, but with a sensitivity uh, that's sufficient to be able to see these small effect sizes that you might see from human genetic alleles. So that's probably uh, the next thing that we're really excited about getting together. All right. Well, we'll keep definitely be keeping an eye out for that, Joe. So uh, thanks for uh, joining us today. We really appreciate uh, you talking about your research and your use of NPRAs. Um, so uh, hopefully we'll see everyone at another GenCast uh, very, very soon. And I'd like to thank Twist Biosciences for sponsoring this podcast. So thanks, everyone. And uh, everyone stay safe and healthy. All right. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to GenCast. For genetic engineering and biotechnology news, I'm Jeff Pogaliskis.